You're listening to Prosperity Egg Out Loud with host Michelle Baker. This podcast is for anyone who loves crop production and the people within our industry. We'll be sharing experiences and expertise on a wide range of topics with individuals from across the province and discussing areas that we can improve within the industry. I hope that you find a piece of information or a contact that helps you in your own agricultural journey. So thank you so much for joining me on a call today. I'm Joanna Fallings, cereal specialist with OMAFRA. In a bit of a busy time of year for you, ramping up with some harvest trials. So that's very exciting and I can't wait to see um, what you come out with. So today we're just going to dive a bit into some of the work and some of the trials that you have going on this year. Maybe some visual observations from fields that you've seen as well as some differences that we've seen across the province. And um, one other very cool thing that I want to talk about is a star removal study that you conducted last year. So uh, lots to talk about. Wheat is very, very exciting. <laughs> it is exciting. It's the best crop. <laughs> yeah. Hey, you know what? There, there's so many good things about wheat, especially when uh, prices have been good like they have been for the last couple years. So that is awesome. So quick intro on you for folks that aren't terribly familiar with you, but I'm sure you know everyone has heard some of the work that you've done. But how long have you been working with the ministry now? Um, so I've been with OMAFRA actually for about seven years now, um, but I've actually only been in this role for uh, about five years. Okay. Um, so yeah, no, we're, it's uh, you know been a good chunk of time now, and so I've got my my feet nice and wet. Um, but yeah, it's been about five years uh, as a cereal specialist with OMAFRA. Very cool. And so in that time now, like, I mean, I'm sure that there were probably some projects that you took over when you started, but I imagine now you're getting to start some that are very much your own. So that's probably pretty exciting for you. Yeah, it's pretty fun to get to, you know, sort of, uh, I guess, create your own path and jump into some of the things that are of interest to me. Um, it's also been a really good opportunity to connect with some of the amazing researchers that we have here um, that I think, you know, we we really cannot take for granted. Um, so it's been a lot of fun. And yeah, I've had some interesting projects that I've gotten to work on. Uh, you know, we're looking at, we continue to look at sulfur. Uh, we're looking at plant growth regulators in winter wheat with, you know, high nitrogen and, and mm-hmm. high management, uh, which seems to be a pretty hot topic for this year, or there's lots of interest considering they're, they're, they're not new, but they're, they're new to Ontario um, and to growers here. So that's been pretty fun. And I'm also um, pretty excited to, to be involved in some projects with spring cereals too, because um, we tend to overlook those crops. And, you know, I think they're just as important and just as valuable uh, to, you know, our production systems here. So I'm pretty excited to be involved in some of those too. For sure. And it's it's funny, right? Because in some parts of the province, spring cereals aren't even on people's radar, right? But then in other parts of the province, they're a big focus. So where's kind of that dividing line? Like what areas do you start to get into the spring grains? Yeah, so we don't tend to see spring cereals in the south uh, simply because it just gets too hot Mm -hmm. um and you know we we run into issues especially during that pollination time you know even right now like we're you know 30 
plus degrees uh, for the last two weeks, which can be a bit challenging for spring cereals. So definitely not in the south, but I would say, you know, as we get further north into to Gray and Bruce counties, Huron counties, uh, and east through, you know, south central to central and eastern Ontario, and of course, northern Ontario, mm -hmm. I would say we tend to see a lot more of those spring cereals. Um, and, you know, we tend to see spring cereals on years where winter wheat doesn't do as well. So if we have a large winter kill event, uh, which, you know, we had just one last year, that was yeah. probably the biggest one we've had. Uh, well, it is the biggest one we've had in the history of the crop insurance program, at least. Uh, so on those years, we'll see a jump in those spring cereals acres as well. Um, but, you know, more so even, you know, growers who have, you know, grown winter wheat, you know, for years, uh, there's a lot of those growers who are super excited and they're diving into some new crops like oats. Uh, and yeah, they're, they're having um, some pretty good results with those as well. Yeah. And I mean, um, I think, you know, the breeding programs are fantastic too, right? So you get some new um, kind of hot varieties and that creates a little bit more excitement for growers uh, to get back into those crops again too, right? And then obviously, you know, the price dictates, but that's, um, that's, that's exciting for you, right? To have a bit more uh, diversity to work with. Yeah, it, uh, it definitely keeps you on your toes. And, you know, you, you touched on a really important part, you know, variety development is, is probably one of the most important aspects, um, you know, of these crops and, you know, winter wheat, you know, we have new varieties coming uh, for growers to be commercially available all the time, whereas we don't see that as much with spring cereals, but we've got some pretty great breeders uh, in at a Canada that you know we're constantly you know pushing the bar and and bringing some of these new lines to to the market uh, we have a great great team on the Ontario Steel Crop Committee um, that you know really we all work together quite well um, but it's it's great to see that that group is pushing the bar and and we're trying to bring new varieties uh, you know to address various issues whether it's you know crown rust and oats uh and and those sorts of things so it's it's pretty exciting to see uh these lines come uh to the marketplace to be available for growers and you know we're even seeing a a, a little bit more interest in things like malting barley uh not just from a growing grower standpoint but also from a breeding standpoint and we're also seeing some more interest in uh winter barley too which is not a new crop to Ontario. Uh, if you ask anyone who's been around for, for a while, winter barley uh, was, you know, a pretty popular crop, but having issues with winter survival and new variety development, you know, that kind of sort of fell off the table a little bit, but we're seeing uh, some, you know, recent engagement and interest in that area. So it's kind of cool. We've got, uh, you know, more winter barley uh, in the ground this year than, you know, I would say we've maybe seen in the last couple of years, which is kind of great to see. Um, but we're also getting some variety development and variety testing there too. And so uh, hopefully we'll have something come out of that pipeline uh, over the next couple of years. Very cool. And certainly at the retail and the producer level, we definitely <laughs> appreciate all the work that goes into developing those new varieties because I know it is a process for sure. <laughs> yeah, so, a long one. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. So let's jump back to winter wheat because I think that's probably the most universal cereal that we have across the province. And 
a lot of funny things showed up this spring. Um, it's so funny because I always hear both sides of the coin. Um, you know, you've got folks that are on the liquid fertilizer bandwagon with their 28 and thiosol and then folks that have a preference for dry. And I think at different parts during the growing season, depending on if it was liquid versus dry versus split application, um, there were stages in the growing season where um, one application method looked better than the other, and then two weeks later, the sec the um, you know the dry fertilizer application may have looked better than the liquid. So a really funny spring um, because it was so cold and it was so dry, but I I feel like there was maybe less uniformity in the color of the crop this spring is that something that you noticed across the province as well you mean the differences in the in the different fertilizer responses we yes you know, yeah. definitely seeing that in in you know across the province and and across soil types um and it's you know something that definitely has has us scratching our heads a little bit and, you know, I think, you know, a lot of it has to definitely do with the environment that we experience. You know, we, <laughs> I was pretty excited come, you know, March 25th, April 1st there, you know, the yeah. crop was looking amazing. We had beautiful weather and we all thought, wow, spring is here. It's an early spring. Let's go. We got the crop in early. And then two weeks later, everything was under snow again. Uh, <laughs> and then it kind of stayed that way for, for a while, not under snow, but it, it stayed quite cool for a while. And so, yeah, this definitely created some challenges uh, for the crop. And, and what, we, what we're thinking, you know, is, you know, with those cool temperatures or those prolonged cool temperatures, we don't necessarily get the same amount of mineralization or that mineralization doesn't kick in. Mm -hmm. And so, depending on the product that you're applying uh, and the availability of those nutrients to the crop and whether or not, you know, they require those microbes in the soil to break them down into a plant available form, uh, that definitely had an impact. And so for those crops, you know, where a form of, of the nutrient that was plant available, it was ready for the crop, you know, especially once things got growing. Uh, but if it wasn't in a plant available form and needed to be broken down further, uh, well, that took some time and it really took a while for that soil to warm up and sort of kick it into high gear and to get those those nutrients uh, mineralizing and, and in that plant available form. So for sure, this is definitely something we're seeing. Um, the other interesting thing around that, too, is, you know, we had growers who applied, say, ammonium sulfate and, and, and didn't have issues, uh, but then they went and applied ammonium thiosulfate and then we would have to go back in with an additional sulfur application, which, you know, we really haven't had to do that in the past uh, where we, you know, had to go do a split nitrogen or sulfur application, sorry. Um, it's just something we haven't seen. You know, we've always recommended you go in with your 10 pounds up front, make sure that sulfur's there for that crop when it needs it. Uh, but interesting, we had to go back in this year and almost create a split application and, and top that sulfur up. And it was simply because uh, some of that sulfur was just not available for that crop when it needed it. And so, um, yeah, we definitely saw some of those funny things uh, like that. We also were, were running into some things with some of the micronutrients and uh, in, in some of those cold soils, we were seeing some interesting stuff happen there, uh, especially if things like a starter fertilizer weren't incorporated into the crop plants. <laughs> yeah, interesting. So um, 
are there any micros because that honestly like it's not really something that we think about in wheat a lot you know i think probably corn and sometimes soybeans that's where we target more with the micronutrients but are you seeing a need for more micronutrient um, fertilizer applications in the wheat crop on certain soil types or what has been you know your visual observation yeah, so you bring up a good point. It's it's funny, you know, when you, we think of wheat, we think mostly, you know, sulfur, nitrogen, those are kind of our, our basis and of course our, our starter fertility. But in all these other crops, you know, we're talking about so many of these micronutrients and it, it's interesting because I'm starting to see those conversations happen more and more in wheat. And this year in particular, I would say one of the micronutrients we were seeing a lot more deficiency in was actually manganese. Um, we typically, you know, we'll see this on, uh, you know, muck soils, uh, high pH soils or sandy soils with low organic matter. Uh, you know, the, the ones that we typically tend to see these sorts of things in. Yep. Um, and, but, you know, even where we would have these types, you know, where we would expect to see it, you know, other years we wouldn't see it, but this year it's definitely something that we saw more of and particularly in those fields that had a history of manganese deficiency. Um, and we, what we're thinking some of that has to do with is, you know, those, again, those cool temperatures likely had an impact on root growth or could have restricted some root growth and had an impact on the uptake of some of those micronutrients. And so some of those, you know, poor root growth uh, and development could then have impacted some of that uptake. And so we were seeing you know, some of those deficiencies show up more than what we typically see. But when it comes to some of these micronutrients, I think the key is to make sure as a grower, as an agronomist, uh, or, or anyone who's helping in these uh, situations is to make sure that when you see these types of deficiencies, uh, you definitely want to be correcting it as quickly as possible. Uh, and you want to make sure that you're actually applying enough. There's, you know, a lot of foliars out there uh, that, you know, are recommended uh, and sometimes though they don't actually provide the right amount of nutrients. And so with something like manganese in particular, we, we can often run into this. And so growers would go out, make their applications and say, hey, you know, my deficiency is not going away and having to top it up. Um, so it's really important to, to know, you know, what the products that they are supplying um, and ensure that, you know, they are in fact applying or supplying, sorry, the right amount. So for example, with manganese, you know, we want to be applying, uh, you know, in the range of six to eight pounds of 32% of manganese sulfate in water with a, a non-ionic uh, surfactant, um, opposed to maybe some of the other foliars that are out there. And it's simply to ensure that that crop is getting enough. Uh, another one that I would say that growers have been talking about and playing around with, and there's been some work done on this, is boron. The challenge with boron, though, is, you know, we'll see a test or a soil test and, you know, it's saying we got a boron deficiency, uh, so we're okay, we got to go correct that, but we don't see the consistent response. Um, and we're, you know, that seems to be happening more often than not. So. That one has still got a bit of a question mark to it, um, but thankfully there's a project that's going on with one of the soil and crop groups looking at this. So hopefully we'll be able to learn from that, but it's boron is another one that's definitely, you know, there's lots of chatter around it, um, but we still have, have a quite a bit to learn there. So I'd say that's probably 
or two of the ones that I would say that, you know, came up quite a bit in, in conversation this year in terms of micronutrients, you know, there's, there's so many more, but I would say those are probably the top two that, you know, I've, I've talked with people about this year. That's really interesting. And I've certainly seen a lot of manganese deficiency in the corn this year on the same salts types that you're speaking to. So I think that's a good point that, um, it's probably good to make note of those fields where you're starting to see those deficiencies and then maybe plan for an application in the following wheat crop um, because you know things get hairy in the spring and uh, <laughs> well, you know sometimes sometimes we forget we don't have the product on hand or whatever um, but if you can start to build it into a crop plan if you you know anticipate to see those deficiencies under certain weather conditions say I think that's uh, that's good to know. And um, if you ever have um, data uh, that you guys have done or that you have read elsewhere on some of the micros, I think that's interesting to, to share as we try and better manage our wheat crops. So that's cool. I'm, yeah, for sure. And yeah. I would say, you know, for the for the growers specifically that are, you know, that are, you know, they've they figured out, you know, their other recipes as it relates to nitrogen and sulfur, and they've got their other fertility levels, you know, where they need to be. Uh, you know, these micronutrients are kind of that next step in in terms of, you know, pushing management. And so, yeah, we have growers who are definitely interested in these just to see, you know, maybe there's areas there that they can tweak, even just to improve or push the bar even further. But definitely record keep uh you know it's that's something that i think really was highlighted this year and really helps you you know dig in uh deeper and and come to some of these conclusions because a lot of these fields uh you know they're the growers who had really good records they could go back and say oh yeah actually this was a problem in in my previous crop so this was a problem in 2014 and so it exactly it can be so helpful so ensuring you have very good records on these things and you know, even just taking some general observation notes around, you know, when you were seeing it, the staging, all those sorts of things can can really come into play later down the road when you have that wheat back in there again. Yeah, for sure. No, that's uh, that's awesome. And like you said, I mean, you know, you highlighted the fact that once you have all of your other nutrients addressed, right? Um, I think that's a really good point to remember. So going back to um, the macros for a minute then, um, yeah, sure. if we talk a little bit more about nitrogen and sulfur, one of my observations this spring was um, there's quite a few hard red winter wheat fields in our area. And so they receive quite a bit higher rate of nitrogen and sulfur than the soft red fields do in the area. And this year in particular, there was a significant difference just in um, greenness across those fields, right? Um, the hard red fields, very, very uniform, kind of like that blue, green, deep color that we're used to seeing, whereas some of the soft red fields where we were only putting down 120 pounds of nitrogen and 12 pounds of sulfur, almost looked like they could have been fed a bit more. And like you said, we had very dry conditions, so likely not as much um, mineralization happening early on as what we normally would have. But my guess, my question is, are we putting on enough at that rate? Um, are there folks across the province that are, you know, really pushing the wheat crop more than that? And in what situations can we get away with uh, with increasing those fertility rates? 
Yeah, and so that's a great question. And, you know, nitrogen, uh, what was the joke I heard someone say the other day? You know, nitrogen is going to keep us all employed forever um, <laughs> because it's, it's, it is the big question mark and, you know, how much nitrogen. Um, so there has been, you know, a quite a bit of work done in this realm uh, with, you know, both uh, Dave Hooker and, and Peter Johnson, you know, both on, with nitrogen alone and, and in combination with fungicides. And so, if you look at that work, um, you know, the maximum economic rate of, of nitrogen uh, for soft red wheat about half of the time is 120 pounds, but the other half, it's, it is uh, higher, it's 150 pounds. And I think, you know, the rates are really going to depend or are going to vary, obviously, on a number of things, you know, field to field, when the crop was planted, the variety you're growing, you know, all those sorts of things. but what I would say is, you know, I really do think that we can push our rates if we are managing it accordingly. So if we are going to, you know, if we're growing a variety that's prone to lodging and we're going to be pushing those higher rates of say 150 pounds per acre, um, we, you know, we obviously want to avoid lodging. So maybe split nitrogen applications or uh, in combination with a plant growth regulator. Uh, to help reduce that lodging risk. If you have history of manure applications and, and uh, you know, high fertile soils, you know, we can probably cut back that rate a little bit more. Um, just, you know, in, the, in, in some situations, we have much more uh, better mineralization in the soil. Um, so again, it's going to vary, but, uh, you know, the data really comes back down to 50% of the time, it's 120, and the other half, it's, it's 150. For hard red growers, those rates are being pushed much higher um, or I shouldn't say much higher, but they are being pushed higher, you know, 160, 170 pounds of nitrogen in some instances. And that's primarily to meet those protein requirements. And mm -hmm. so the key there is with, with those growers and the way they manage it is that those second applications or later applications are targeted specifically for protein. So we're targeting yield early on and later on we're targeting protein. So. For a soft red grower, uh, you know, this year what we're doing is we are looking at higher nitrogen rates. So we've actually got a comparison with a research project with Dave Hooker looking at 130 versus 180 pounds of nitrogen. And so the goal is to see how far can we push. Uh, you know, 180 pounds is is likely to cause some lodging, uh, depending on the varieties. And you know, we've got a plot this year where we put 180, 130 pounds down and there was no lodging uh, and another plot, you know, 10 minutes south, uh, different variety. And we've got lots of lodging in the 180 pounds. And so that just emphasizes the need there for growers to know and understand, you know, the how their variety responds to different kinds of management and why we want to do all these on farm trials to see how um, things respond, you know, from farm to farm. That will be cool to see those results. I'm excited. Yeah, for no, that. and they're they're hopefully gonna well, we'll hopefully get them available as soon as possible. They're, we're just uh, the growers are are kind enough to, uh, to help us with this, but they're just coming off now. Um, so you know, there again, we're going to look. You know, obviously, we want to push our management, but it's it's also about profitability, and so we want to determine. You know, are those higher rates of nitrogen, specifically in soft red wheat, are they profitable? Um, yes, we can put them on and we can keep them standing and get them to harvest. Um, but what are the true differences and is it economical at the end of the day? 
Um, so those are some of the sorts of things that we're seeing. But yeah, you know, I think we can still confidently say, you know, our current recommendations with a fungicide application in the range of 120 to 150 pounds per acre, again, depending on planting dates, uh, variety grown, history of manure applications, all those sorts of things. I think we can still uh, stand pretty solid on those on those rates. Perfect. Nope, that's good to know. And um, where can we find that data um, once you guys have compiled it at the end of the harvest season? <laughs> uh, so hopefully we'll have some of this available. So this is just the first year, so it'll be a yep. three-year project. Um, and and Dave, Dr. Dave Hooker is going to also be doing small plot work. And this project's actually a similar project's also happening in oats for those who are interested in growing oats and spring cereals. Um, and so we will have the hopefully have the data published, but it'll also hopefully be available the on-farm components uh, through the Ontario Soil and Crop Crop Advances reports. Uh, so we'll make sure that we get yearly updates on there, and then of course field crop news always check back there. We'll, we'll try to get things posted there as quickly as we can get the results uh, available to everyone. Um, we'll stick them there too. Perfect. We'll look forward to seeing that uh, later on then. Very cool. So I guess um, another question that I had for you, you had mentioned uh, that you have been working more with um, plant growth regulators and that you know there has been more work done in the States and it's relatively new in Ontario. So just give us a bit of insight on your experience working with them so far and maybe some of the success um, or you know other stories that you have in your experiences there. Yeah, so you know, uh, plant growth regulators, I guess the first thing that I'll say about plant growth regulators is that it's it really is a tool to manage lodging. So it's not going to be something or they are not going to be something that's needed every year and every acre um, across the province. So I think that's the first caveat there. It's really a tool to manage lodging. And so it's really for those instances or those growers who are high managers. So we're going to be pushing our nitrogen rates. Um, you know, we're going to be planting early, pushing seeding rates, uh, using fungicide applications, um, that's a scenario where, you know, we might have an increased lodging risk. If you are a grower who has history of manure applications, for livestock producers, lodging can be a real challenge, uh, even at lower, lower rates of nitrogen. And so though, that's a great fit there. Um, and if you're growing a variety that's prone to lodging, you know, I think there's some varieties that we have out there that we haven't really been able to push the bar as much and it's simply because of lodging and so i think plant growth regulators are a great fit for some of those varieties uh, to be able to see you know can we get more out of them it's really not going to be for for those uh, fields that are planted late low seeding rates uh, you know low management uh, the the plant growth regulators really don't fit into those systems and I would say that the one of the biggest observations that I've, I've made, and this is pretty consistent with some previous work that's done uh, with, uh, within Ontario, but also in, in Western Canada, is that the biggest response uh, is, is, is plant height, but it really does vary across variety. And so for those who are interested in plant growth regulators or wanting to try them out, if you're going to try them out, make sure that you understand or know the 
lodging uh, potential of your variety. And it's really easy to find that out. Uh, so if you go to the Go Cereals website, uh, we have all of the performance trial data on there and you every trial uh, or sorry, every variety has their lodging rated. So they can actually go in there, see what the lodging potential is of that crop. And if it's if it's a low lodging risk, you know, you might not see the same response compared to some of those those, uh, you know, more those varieties more prone to lodging. So that's definitely we're seeing some of that this year, uh, which has been pretty neat. Um, but yeah, it's and the other the other observation or that can happen um, and some have observed is that there might be some a little bit of that that stay green. Um, so we have seen a little bit of that as well. And the other thing I guess I would add to is uh, so I know I emphasize that this is a tool for lodging, um, but you know PGRs aren't necessarily also going to give you yield. Right. Um, there's, you know, that has varied. So there's been research done where it's increased yield, but there's also been, you know, some results where it has no impact on yield. Um, and in, in some very rare cases, it, it actually decreased yield. But for the most part, you know, it's, it's to really look at this as a another tool in the toolbox to help us push the bar. Um, and it's not, you know, necessarily a, a blanket across all acres. For sure. So a bit of a, you know, a risk management strategy. Um, exactly. If you're looking to get into those higher management situations, so that's cool. Um, it's uh, it's great to be able to to add tools that we can work with for sure. Yeah. So the and the other thing too is this isn't just for winter wheat, right? Uh, this is for spring cereals too. And and the other crop I'm probably I'm probably even more excited than even winter wheat. Dare I say is is to see how these how this tool works in oat production. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of potential for us to unlock in oats, or I shouldn't say a lot, there is potential for us to unlock on oats, but as any oat grower knows, you have to be very careful um, not to put too much nitrogen on, uh, and you can end up with a, a pretty uh, big mess at come harvest. And so I think PGRs or, or plant growth regulators will be a pretty awesome tool for those producers. Um, so we can push the management in, in that crop in particular even more than we already are. Yeah, no, that's a good point. We uh, we personally are growing oats for the very first time this oh, year. Fun. And so, yeah, uh, they're, they're looking a little drought stressed at the moment. But, um, <laughs> Everything needs a good drink of water. <laughs> for sure. But so I had been asking around earlier this spring because they were a pretty new crop for me. And I, I had heard some horror stories regarding lodging. So like you mentioned, uh, we did our best with the split fungicide approach. Um, but like you say, it's it's good to know that we have more things coming our way just to help manage the risk in a crop like that. So that's cool. Yeah. Very cool. Um, you cover, you know, the whole province, obviously. So you get to see a lot. Have you noticed much of a difference in how we manage cereals in certain areas of the province versus others? Are there some areas that are um, maybe a bit more progressed in how they manage the crop versus others, or what have you found? Yeah, so that's a good question, and and so it's tough to quantify by region that way because you know every region <laughs> know. has its has its perks and has its different needs. You know, obviously, or not obviously, sorry, Eastern Ontario has its challenges with winter survival. Um, mm -hmm. So more often we'll we'll tend to see the spring cereals shift in in replacement of those winter wheat acres. Um, and it's simply just because of the winters are, are, are so harsh and, and challenging for that crop. Um, I would say, you know, 
definitely hard red winter wheat growers are doing an excellent job of intensive management um, and, and simply just growers who want to make wheat a profitable and integral part of the rotation. And where I, I tend to see, or I guess where I observe this, you know, happening, it tends to be in, in livestock regions. And, mm -hmm. you know, where we have livestock, we grow wheat because we want straw. But, you know, now that, you know, these growers are seeing this as, you know, in an important part of their entire system, it's, it's not just a rotational crop. They don't look at it just as a rotational crop. Those growers are really pushing their management even more. And I think that probably the, the biggest thing that we can learn from these growers who are pushing the bar is, you know, they've done a lot of trial and error on their own farms. And, and mm -hmm. so if I were to give any advice to those wanting to push their management, it'd be, it'd be just try it, try it out, put in test strips, try different varieties. Um, you know, you can stick, if you have a variety that you know is faithful, it works well on your farm, you know, look at the cereal crop community data. That's why we put it there for growers to to be able to make those assessments and, and select those varieties for those farms. Um, but try some of those new varieties. There's a lot of great varieties that have come down the pipeline. And again, you know, these varieties are, have have been bred and have been registered to be to be better than existing varieties. And so, yeah, I would just say, you know, put in chest strips, try things out. Even if you just change one thing at a time, uh, even if it's one thing this season or next season that you change, just try it. Um, and you know, I, I have this little quote that one of my really good friends always says, uh, and he's not in agriculture, but he always says, "Don't sit still, make moves." And that's how I feel about about our management. You know, don't don't sit still, don't keep doing the same thing over and over. Obviously, those things that work well, we want to be continuing to do. But, but try something new, uh, challenge yourself. And even if it's just on one field and in one area of the field, you know, um, these growers who are high managed growers got there by doing just that. Uh, so that would be, that would be my advice to, to those, to those people. Yeah, I like that. And like you said, um, every area has its growers. And so, you know, look around and uh, if there's fantastic wheat fields, um, in your area, um, it doesn't hurt to ask, you know, what they've done differently and try and learn from the folks in your local area. So that's, um, yeah. that's a, that's some really good points there. And I like that quote. That's a good one. <laughs> yeah, I, it's, it's a really good one. He, he's in physiotherapy, but it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's a good one that I think applies to a lot of different things. And you bring up a good point. If you, if you see your neighbor, you know, or, or someone down the road that has a really good crop, go, go and ask those questions. You know, I, I learned so much from growers and just, you know, sitting down with them and asking them about what they try, what works, what doesn't work. Um, and so, yeah, talk to your neighbors. I, I would definitely encourage that because they, they want to help you. They're, you know, I don't think anyone's going to turn you away. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good point. <laughs> No, that's um that that's cool. So another area of the wheat crop that we don't seem to think about too much until this time of year and folks are trying to decide whether to blow their straw back on the ground or uh, or bail it. Um, you know, the questions this time of year always arise about what are we actually taking off the field 
And so uh, last summer was pretty cool. I got to help you pull some samples of straw that you sent to the lab and had analyzed to um, take a look at, at least for last growing season, exactly what we were removing off the field. So do you want to talk a little bit about that work and then maybe some of the previous work um, that you have uh, read about as well? Yeah, sure. So <laughs> this is definitely the, the million dollar question this time of year is, you know, what's the value of my straw? Uh, should I sell it? Should I spread it back over the field? Um, and so, you know, there's a couple of things that, you know, we need to look at or, or talk about when it comes to that. And so, you know, last year we had lots of demand for straw because we had such a large winter kill event. Whereas this year, you know, there's lots of straw available. There's lots of wheat in the ground. We have more winter wheat acres in the ground this year than we seeded last year, which is amazing. Um, so again, that's probably also going to play into growers' decision-making. So if you look back at, at some of the work, I guess one of the things to keep in mind as I, I talk about some of this, uh, you know, there's between 70 and 85 pounds of straw for every bushel of wheat. So that equates to 25 bushels of wheat for produces a ton of straw. So just okay. as we go through this. So what we did last year, we collected samples, we did an analysis and on the removal of those uh, of nutrients. And what we found is that on average in, in the samples that we did, we were moving uh, about 13 pounds a ton of nitrogen um, about 2.2 pounds of phosphorus or P2O5 and, and 28.6 pounds a ton of K2O or, or, or potash. And so, you know, we, we looked at those numbers and thought, okay, so how do these align with previous work and how do they align with OMAFA recommendations? And they were actually, you know, right in line with the previous work that was done by Bill Dean back in 2012. And they were also right in line with OMAFRA guidelines or OMAFRA current removal rates. Um, and so our, our OMAFRA current rates are removal of 15 pounds of nitrogen, uh, three and a half pounds of phosphorus and 25 pounds of, of potash for every ton of straw. So I think we can confidently say that the, the current guidelines are, are pretty in line with you know, what we would see on average. Those will vary though, depending on a couple of things. So first being, you know, rainfall throughout the season and, and nutrient loss throughout the season will have an impact. So on a dry year like this, for example, we're probably going to have a lot less losses compared to, say, last year, for example. Um, and also, you know, how much rainfall we get on the straw itself. So if your straw is sitting in that windrow for a longer period of time, it gets some rain events. Um, you're probably going to have some more leaching and you're probably going to have a uh, nutrient less uh, nutrients removed in that straw compared to say if you just you know combined it or combined the wheat and took that straw off say the next day if you get like a little sprinkle of rain too that's probably not going to have a heavy huge impact uh, the other thing to also remember is is something that we refer to as as called luxury consumption and so basically what that, that means is, so the higher your P and K values are in your field, we will see higher amounts in the straw as well. So if you are a, a grower with you know, high soil tests, you're probably having higher values or being removed in your straw. 
And if you have lodged wheat, um, you know, that's obviously another sign that we've got, you know, lots of nutrients there and we're probably going to see a much higher nutrient content uh, in that straw. And so those are kind of the ballpark numbers and, and those will vary, you know, based on a couple of the things I said, you know, rainfall being kind of the big one and, and whether or not it's a wet year or a dry year. Um, and so, you know, it still begs a question, well, like, what's the value of my straw? What's the value of those nutrients? And so those values, the, the 15 pounds of nitrogen, the three and a half pounds of phosphorus and 25 pounds of potash for every ton of straw, with today's current fertilizer prices accounts to about a cent per pound. Um, so if you were to remove that straw, you would need about a cent to put those nutrients back into the field. And I think that's um, that's been kind of the common phrase that I've always heard, but I know there's always question on, well, is that still accurate? you know, with um, today's wheat crop and yeah. today's fertilizer values, but um, it's so great that folks can have confidence um, in the values that are provided in Ontario. So that and, is, um, that's cool. And the other thing too, like, so I guess just obviously this doesn't account for, you know, organic matter because it's very difficult to quantify sure. that. But, you know, if we look at the long-term trials that happen at, you know, Richtown and Allura, even where we remove the straw in, you know, we, we, in those plots, we still see the value and the benefit, right? We still see increased organic matter levels. We still see improvement in soil health. We still see the yield benefits to corn and soybean. And so if selling that straw, you know, makes that wheat crop more profitable, then, then that works for your operation. And even if you remove that straw, I think it's also important to remember that more than half the biomass is is still below the ground in the roots plus what you don't cut above the ground um and like on a dry year like this for instance i suspect that by that below ground biomass to be quite high or quite good considering the roots are probably digging pretty deep right now for water um so that hopefully will help a little bit in in some of the decision making too that's um that's awesome and i actually i I didn't know that I, I hadn't read that about the trials, like the long-term trials that you folks had done. I didn't realize that the straw had been removed in those situations. And uh, that's really good information for everyone to have, just to, again, have the confidence that, you know, in a situation where maybe you need to sell your straw or you're sitting on the fence, that um, you're still gonna have essentially the same benefits from growing that wheat crop. So that's, uh, that's really good to know. Really good to know. <laughs> yeah. No, and it's not an easy thing to answer, right? And, you know. No, I know. It definitely varies year to year, but hopefully some of those things gives a little bit of confidence to those who are, you know, struggling a little bit. There is still value to having that wheat, even if you, you do remove that straw. Yeah. Okay. No, that's awesome. Um, so one, uh, one last question for you. Um, you know, you see the province as a whole and, uh, you know, you discuss obviously with other folks within OMAFRA, um, different research that's going on in other crops too. Um, what's one area of cereal management or just, you know, general crop production within the province that you feel we could uh, most improve as a whole? <laughs> Um, so for me, the thing that stands out the most uh, is, is establishment. Um, okay. We focus so much 
you know, on our corn and soybean establishment and ensuring, you know, our, we're planting in good time, uh, we're, we're using the right, uh, you know, starters, all those sorts of things. Uh, and when it comes to, to winter wheat in particular, it's, it seems to be a bit more of a, of a rush. Uh, and understandably so, we're trying to combine uh, our soybeans and, and, you know, try to doing a lot of things at that time. But with winter wheat, it is so responsive to starter fertilizer and phosphorus in particular. And again, this year, you know, that was highlighted where, you know, we didn't have starter fertilizer. That wheat has been struggling all along. Uh, where we've got late planted wheat, same story. We're, we're, you know, we're, we're still having, you know, a pretty good crop in those situations. But, you know, maybe had we pushed our, our planting dates a little sooner, uh, we, we would have set ourselves up for, for a little bit more success. And so I would say establishment is definitely the area as a province that we can improve. And whether that means, you know, getting those soybeans in and off, you know, sooner or, you know, adjusting our maturities uh, to be able to incorporate wheat into the rotation. Uh, and if maybe that doesn't work, maybe we need to look at, you know, switching up our rotations, maybe consider uh, throwing in some edible beans or canola for the regions that are, are able to grow it. Uh, those sorts of things can really go a long way. And, you know, for every day that we delay uh, planting date, you know, we lose 1.1 bushels per day. Uh, you know, off the top in yield. So, you know, that adds up pretty quickly, uh, you know, as you're starting to get two, three weeks beyond your optimum planting date. And, you know, starter fertilizer, phosphorus, you know, if maybe you're not equipped with uh, a drill that allows you to seed place some, uh, you know, some starter, uh, then perhaps, you know, maybe we need to look at different, uh, different options and, you know, maybe looking at custom, a custom planting, and you know, doing some math to say, okay, how much is this going to cost to be able to get that starter in, uh, and and what's the benefit that I'm going to get that from that? And so I would challenge growers on that. You know, I would I would you know consider if if that's the situation you're in to to crunch those numbers and see what we can do to to set that crop up for su success um, because that will follow us through right through to the end of harvest. So. Establishment, establishment, establishment. <laughs> <laughs> no, those are some really good points. And you're right. I think even just in um, in our equipment and everything, we take a lot more care to make sure that the corn planters are set up properly for, um, you know, perfect seed placement with corn and even soybeans. I think we're maybe a little bit more careful than we sometimes are with wheat. And like you say, things are you know, they're busy um, at fall with harvest and whatnot going on too, but that's a really good point. And that, um, the piece that you brought up about looking at the economics and deciding if whether it may be more profitable for you to hire someone um, to custom plant your wheat if they have dry fertilizer capabilities, or in, in some situations, I know you could have, um, like say a retailer blend fertilizer with wheat seed, um, just depending on what style air cart you have or whatnot, but um, that's such a good point because I, I, I think you're right in some situations like there may be more upfront costs, but just having that phosphorus placement there payback dividends in the end. So that's a really good message for a lot of people. Yeah, and it's, you know, it's not something that we would probably think of or, you know, you know, the, the next solution we jump to, but 
you know, it's, I think that, you know, if you crunch the numbers, you'd be surprised. Yeah. Um, it might be something worthwhile, but yeah, I would definitely agree. It's, it's really about establishment. Yeah. Oh no, that's um good memo for a lot of people. So <laughs> that's fantastic. Well, I, uh, I really appreciate your time today and I am really looking forward to seeing um, more of the results that um, come from you over the years. Cause I think you're doing a lot of fantastic work and uh I think we're really fortunate um, as producers and agronomists that we have such great folks like yourself working at Omafra to try and, like you say, push the bar on the crops that we grow. So thank you so much. Yeah, and thank you so much for having me today. This is really fun. <laughs> thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. For more episodes, please subscribe. You can find updates to new episodes on my Twitter at prosperityag0l.